2: Hey, glad you could join me today. It's always a good time to revel in wrong think, but uh, considering the times that we live in, I think this may actually be the best time, at least for anybody who understands wants to claim their personal freedom, as well as their uh, personal autonomy. we got a lot to cover today. Let's dive right in. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also by LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, I've included links to each one of these sponsors in the show notes. I encourage you to check out the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com because this is a place where you can do deeper study of these issues. I'm not saying that, oh, yes, it's a college course just laid out right there for you in everyday show notes, but the sources that I am able to access and the links that I provide will give you plenty of uh, reading material, plenty of opportunity to take a deep dive on these various topics. And if it's uh, important to you to know what's going on without having to immerse yourself in that, that uh, septic tank that is mainstream media today, well, this is a good way to go about it. Now, I ought to tell you right from the beginning, I still think one of the best things that any of us can do, especially in relation to keeping our sanity, is to turn off the news. As often as you can, or at least as often as you need to. I know. I, I'm kind of a junkie when it comes to information too. I want to know. I mean, it's it's inquiring minds like mine. We want to know. We want to know what's going on. And sometimes I think it it is more of an addiction than not. First thing in the morning, I roll out of bed. My eyes are still blurry, and what am I doing? Let's see what's happening. Is there anything big in the world going on? First thing, I mean, it's like before I take my first. Breath of fresh air in the morning. It's, no, I got to see if anything important happened. Might have to go report on it. <laughs> people are counting on me, you know. Anyway, but we got to take a break sometimes. It's, it's overwhelming. You know, there was a time, and I, I think for some people it may still be like this, when uh, people who were <clears throat> struggling to maintain their mental health almost carried a little bit of a stigma, Maybe a lot of stigma, especially like if you were to if you were to go to a counselor and say, I am having trouble keeping uh, my head on straight or I'm, I'm having, you know, negative thoughts, I'm having negative feelings. I mean, for some people, this can go all the way to, you know, I'm I'm back drinking again or I'm having suicidal ideation or whatever. I just want to tell you, do not feel like something is wrong with you. You are defective. Everybody else is dealing with life and all the challenges around us just, you know, fine. You, though, if you are struggling, well, yeah, there's definitely something wrong with you. I say that because I think everybody at some level is, is being very challenged by this. And it's especially tough on kids. It's especially tough on older people who've been isolated. I feel especially bad for older people who have nothing to do but sit around and absorb whatever the news is pumping at them because the news is pumping so much fear and so much, you know, dread over COVID. I know for a fact, when I go to visit my mom, one of the conversations that we're going to have, in fact, usually the main topic of conversation once we sit down and start talking is, who has COVID? Who's on a ventilator? who's Who's been infected? What's going on? You know, it's... It, But that's that's all she's absorbing day in and day out. She really feels like this is the most important stuff. You can see how stuff like that would weigh on a person's mental well-being. And as much as I want to convince myself, oh, well, but I'm above it, you know, as a confident, uh, well-adjusted, heterosexual male. Well, I don't know why I threw that in there, but I did. I just, uh, I still find myself, you know, struggling with the weight of everything that's going on around us. Some people, you know, are even are even more sensitive to this. They they describe an almost heaviness or, or darkness that they feel is settling on society. And it's true, the challenges are considerable. But I hope uh, through the information that I share with you, you understand that, yeah, we can acknowledge those difficult facts. Okay, we can look we can look these unpleasant truths right in the eye and see them for what they are. We don't have to minimize or we don't have to minimize or uh, otherwise deny them in order to get through life however there's a lot of good stuff happening as well and i especially am grateful for those people who can explain what's happening or give us context about what's happening in a way that uh, that we recognize for everything that's going wrong there's also a lot in the world that's going right but i promise you the more mainstream media content you are consuming the harder it's going to be to maintain that sense of optimism and that sense of, I can handle this. And I think it's because a lot of the messages that are being broadcast at us are are messages that are intended to convey, you are broken. If you don't think like the the masses think, you're broken. And maybe they're meant to convey to us that, you know, no matter what you do, evil has won. It's in control. I mean, they certainly try to give that, that perception, those who are pushing that that narrative. And there's also the, the prospect of everybody believes this. Why are you the odd person out? Okay, that's consensus, right? That's an that appeal to consensus. Well, you know, every reasonable person, every sane person thinks this way. Which means, you know, by... Implication, if you don't, then that means something is mentally wrong with you. Maybe we should send you to a camp somewhere for re-education. Get your thinking right. Jeez, it's worked in other other regimes. Why wouldn't it work for us? But the bottom line here is you're not broken. And you are not wrong because you are making a stand if that stand is based on principle, actual principle. In fact, if you are the only person who is standing for a true principle, and everybody else in the room is against that principle, it still doesn't mean that you are wrong. probably means you're uncomfortable. <laughs> it probably means you know what it feels like to be, you know, stuck in the spotlight in a place you'd rather not be. But programs like this exist for the purpose of helping to demonstrate that, no, consensus is not absolute, Every day as I set out to, uh, to do this show, I want to help break that illusion of consensus and not just do it in a sense that nobody else believes or, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the odd duck. I may be an odd duck. But you need to understand sometimes the odd duck gets it right, whether it's me or somebody else, you know, it, just because a person is standing alone does not mean that, that uh, by default they are wrong. So where to begin today? Let's start with the idea that uh, the political class has been leveraging fear over COVID-19 into control over the public. Now, if you say that to some people, they'd say, well, there you go. Already he's off on a conspiracy theory. But is it a conspiracy theory? Scott Moorfield explains how this ought to be evident to any person who recognizes that governments have lost the war against the virus. Now, I started following the Brownstone Institute. Brownstone.org is their web address, and one of the reasons I follow them is because Jeffrey Tucker, who formerly was one of the chief editors at the American Institute for Economic Research, he is now with the Brownstone Institute. Don't know what the deal is behind, you know, the, the shift from one institution to the other, but the Brownstone Institute is very, very on top of, you know, approaching... This information about COVID in a very principled way. Scott Moorefield, in writing about how governments lost the war against the virus, starts by reminding us when the Japanese finally surrendered on September 2nd, 1945. The official news never reached Japanese Lieutenant Hiru Onoda, who, along with a few compatriots, spent the next three decades hiding out in the Philippine mountains, carrying out guerrilla activities against local police and farmers. And although leaflets were dropped several times over the years, Onoda and his fellow soldiers refused to believe the news. Instead, stubbornly choosing to continue a pointless fight that they must have known they couldn't possibly win. And this is probably a good example of the mindset that, that some people have been locked into, particularly people in power. It's clear the virus isn't obeying their little edicts. It's not obeying their lockdowns or their their mask mandates or anything else. It's not even playing fair with the uh, vaccine. So when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to share the rest of, of this article about how governments lost the war against the virus. That doesn't mean, by the way, that all is lost. It just means that we need to accept the reality that this virus is going to do what viruses do. And it's going to run its course through society. That means we have to protect the vulnerable, which is not everybody, but, uh, but there are vulnerable. We'll come back to this just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back.
2: I'm going to jump back into this article from the Brownstone Institute about how governments lost the war against the virus. Now, in this article, written by Scott Moorfield, he talks about how one of the last things that, uh, that we encounter in the, the stages of grief is is acceptance. That's, that's uh, one of the, the stages of grief that human beings experience. And that's where team reality has been for much, if not most, of the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, he says, we got there pretty quickly. Thanks to science, by which he means the real kind humans used to practice before they lost their ever-loving minds, we've known all along there is no stopping or permanently containing a highly contagious respiratory virus that by March 2020 had already been raging for months and making significant headway into the population. Team Reality accepted this, and as was eloquently eloquently drawn out later that year by a group of highly qualified medical professionals in the Great Barrington Declaration, they postulated the best way to mitigate that inevitable damage would be to shield the vulnerable and let the virus burn through those to whom it posed little statistical risk. After some temporary pain, herd immunity would have been achieved in a matter of months and life would have returned to normal. Now, just as an aside here, I think herd immunity at one point was somewhere around 70 to 79 percent. CDC at this point is not saying what herd immunity is. I mean, they're they're claiming that, you know, 80 percent of people have either had it or had the vaccine, had the covid or had the vaccine. But there is no clear number on where herd immunity will be achieved. In fact, they don't even talk about it much. That's curious. I wonder why. But Scott Moorfield says, would our overlords listen to logic, science, and common sense? The answer is, of course not. Instead, they went all in on lockdowns, then mask mandates, and now leaky vaccines and vaccine mandates, none of which have worked as advertised, or at least nearly as advertised. The lockdowns worked for a little while, but they couldn't be sustained, It's destroying people's lives. The mask mandates never did anything at all, although they are still protecting people in the U.S. against still and although they are still protecting people in the U.S. against severe illness and death, they say the vaccine program seems to be falling, failing rather, on a massive scale. Going in a matter of months from a path to normality to your vaccine protects me, but the vaccinated can still get and transmit COVID. So we have to wear a mask indefinitely, yet we still have to force everyone to get a vaccine. So everyone is safe or something. Scott Moorfield says yet in a quest that cannot possibly be achieved. President Biden continues to double and quadruple down, mercilessly abusing the power of the federal government in the process. We just have to mask up and vax harder, we're told, and at some point we'll get to a new normal where school children could at some point not have their mask taped to their foreheads by some psycho hypochondriac teacher if they let it drop below their nose for a few seconds. Hey, we can all dream, right? Scott Moorfield says if there was ever a time to face facts, it's now. Those of us who still have a degree of sanity left need to shout it from the rooftops. The war is over and the virus won. It is here. It is extremely contagious. It is sadly deadly to some, and it's never going away. The best we can hope for is a semblance of herd immunity that helps control an endemic virus that hopefully over time will become more of a cold than a deadly pathogen. Now, obviously, the powers that be have been fighting hard for the vaccine kind of immunity. But the more time that passes and the more data that comes in, especially from Israel and the U.K., the more obvious it's becoming that these vaccines aren't preventing transmission or contraction. And what efficacy they do wanes in a matter of months. In other words, vaccine-generated herd immunity isn't happening. And given that we've never had a sterile vaccine against a coronavirus, it probably never will. That means that in some form or other, almost everybody with a pulse is going to get COVID-19 or a variant thereof. If everyone would simply accept this simple fact and prepare accordingly, we could avoid so much of the needless destruction we're doing to ourselves. Sure, this preparation could come in the form of taking a vaccine, especially for those who are in a vulnerable category, you know, in order to make the virus milder for them. But for all, it should also come in the form of health measures we've known for decades. Things like losing weight, getting in shape, taking key vitamins like zinc and vitamin D, and addressing health issues, existing health issues. Taking yourself out of a vulnerable category puts you at far less risk of a bad outcome. Of course, nobody in government is going to tell its subjects anything like that because none of this has ever been about public health. Many of the vaccinated are angry at the unvaccinated because they've been lied to. Both about who is actually spreading COVID. Anyone care to guess what happens when a vaccinated person contracts COVID yet feels fine and engages normally in society? hmm and in the efficacy of the vaccines themselves. So many theme- seem to think that the vaccines are sterile in the same way that vaccines against other diseases have been, and that if we just mask and vax hard enough, there will be a future time where there is no COVID. Well, here's a news flash. Even if vaccination levels somehow reached 100%, transmission and contraction of this virus will not end. So it's time to end the insanity. It's time to surrender and stop fighting a fight we can't win. Sure, shield and vaccinate the vulnerable and hope to God that some of the rumors about vaccines driving variants aren't true. But the vast majority of people need to accept and deal with the fact that they are going to get this virus, which will continue virusing until it's finished, regardless of what humans do. The good news, if they're willing to hear it, is the same as it's always been it won't be dangerous for the vast majority. Onana, the Japanese lieutenant, finally surrendered in 1974 nearly 30 years after the war was over. His compatriots had died over the years. His fruitless activities resulted in the needless deaths of at least 30 innocent Filipino farmers and the destruction of countless crops and other property. At that point, he had wasted more than half his life fighting a war that had already ended and destroying the lives of so many others in the process. So the lesson we can draw from that is that the powers that be haven't admitted it yet. But the war against COVID-19 is over. It's time to accept reality and stop kicking against the bricks. It's time to end the mask mandates, the useless school quarantining, the vaccine coercion, and every other ugly, unnecessary aspect of this horrible, dystopian society our overlords have created. How many more lives will be forever destroyed or damaged by the fruitless efforts of the COVID warriors who refuse to accept the inevitable and surrender. Now, I know some people have a real aversion to that word surrender, but I think Scott Moorfield is right on, on target with this commentary. Maybe it's just to accept the reality that this virus is doing what other viruses before it have done, what viruses yet to come will do. It has to run its course but in the meantime, man, you have a lot of people treating a lot of uh, leaders, I should say, or people in positions of authority, treating the people in in their uh, jurisdiction like so many lab rats. What if we lock them down like this? What if we make them hop on one foot with their hand over their left ear? Okay, how about over their right ear? It's nuts. And I don't want to sound like, you know, as as an omniscient being, of course, I saw this coming. But for a lot of us who were paying attention, especially those of us who've been keyed in on issues of freedom and issues of government overreach, this wasn't hard to see. It was really quite clear. And as you've seen it play out in other places like Australia, you can see the blueprint for what other governments are likely to engage in. And man, I'll tell you, I hope and pray, I sincerely hope and pray we don't see the kind of... um, first world police state that now exists in Australia come home here. But if it does, rest assured, it's not going to be because the virus has suddenly mutated again and now it's the most dangerous thing on Earth. It's going to be because people in authority have chosen to milk the fear of that virus and to use it to better consolidate their control of the people who live within their, their jurisdiction. That's a scary thought, but it's one worth pushing back against no matter what.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by the
2: Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, probably don't need to tell you, but this is the hottest real estate market that most of us have ever seen. And if you are looking for a home in the state of Utah, particularly in southern Utah, you have got to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They have the experience in the lending industry, decades of experience, to help you get the loan you need in a very timely fashion. Because if you find the home of your dreams, the chances of it still being there days later is not real good. They're going fast. That means you've got to have your financing squared away. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call them at 435-703-4522. They're located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So let's talk for a moment about, uh, well, about medical experimentation and collective punishment. Because the various mandates that are being forced upon us aren't just violating freedom of conscience and personal autonomy. They also cross a number of ethical and moral lines as well. Saw a great article by J.B. Shirk. This was on AmericanThinker.com. He says, fake president, but real dictator Joe Biden says, we're going to protect the vaccinated workers from the unvaccinated coworkers. Ah, he says, if only the vaccinated workers had as healthy immune systems as their unvaccinated colleagues. But he says, whatever the friendly U.S. government is injecting into people, it's certainly not inoculating against or inhibiting transmission of the Fauci virus. If the vaccinated must walk around in bubble boy suits for the rest of their lives. The vaccine that works so nice, you have to take it twice or thrice. Uh, We'll let you know when you've had enough, Prol. See, before the hope and change replaced the scientific method, not only did the medical community know the difference between males and females, but also vaccinations actually conferred immunity. Now, J.B. Shirk says, is there some unwritten rule that we must endure fake vaccinations during fake presidencies? I know we live in a time when the political left redefines words daily to fit its desired propaganda objectives. But if vaccine now means nothing more than an injection that may or may not prevent illness, so long as the subject remains in sterilized environments and wrapped in protective headgear, then that's hardly different from defining bulletproof vest as a garment that may or may not prevent bodily harm, as long as the wearer curls up in the fetal position and hides from danger. Now that Americans are being threatened with economic destruction, unless they let Uncle Sam slap on some rubber gloves and play doctor, I think we know where this bolderization of medical terminology is naturally heading. Vaccination. Noun. The choice between letting the lying liars who run the U.S. government pump an experimental serum into your veins or being forced into unemployment, homelessness, and starvation. Also, vaccinate. Verb. A profane expletive for fornication. As in the pudding-brained pretender-in-chief sure vaccinated me this time. Kind of like that definition, actually. Good substitute for cuss words. Now, J.B. Shirk says, as long as we're considering technical definitions, maybe it's time to consult long-standing international agreements on the protection of human rights and the prosecution of war crimes. As its first stated principle outlining the bare minimum required of medical professionals to satisfy moral, ethical, and legal duties. The 1947 Nuremberg Code states clearly, The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and an enlightened decision. That's pretty clear. So let's put aside, J.B. Shirk says, whether in their rush to vaccinate the world, medical bureaucrats have sufficiently enlightened patients as to all the health hazards that might reasonably be expected to come from an experimental treatment Because the usual long-term studies that track potentially harmful side effects of new treatments over the course of 10 years or more were thrown out the window. So governments could quickly jab their citizens without much scrutiny. Long-term harm, well, only the future will tell. Rather, he says, let's highlight what the Nuremberg Code says about consent. It must be free from force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion. Now, does this set off any alarm bells for ethicists concerned about not following in the footsteps of Nazi medical science or treating citizens or civilians as guinea pigs for experimental research? Is it possible that Herr Biden's angry threats against healthy citizens for not partaking in his medical research might amount to duress or coercion? Let's see. Jab this in your arm or we will fire you, render you unemployable, threaten the financial survival of you and your family, and maybe leave you destitute and homeless. Ding, ding, ding. Talk about overreach. Surely threatening people with economic destruction if they won't submit to medical experimentation is the exact kind of government force or mandate the war crimes tribunal at Nuremberg was trying to prevent in the future. Surely vaccine mandates explicitly designed to outlaw freedom or personal choice should be scrutinized with an eye open to the human atrocities of the past. And yet here we are, 75 years later, and medical experimentation is back in style. Maybe the New World Order, the globalists keep forcing down our throats, is once again written in German, even if President Dumkopf only speaks uh, gibberish. J.B. Shirk says not only is the right to avoid the imposition of human experimentation protected by the Nuremberg Code, principles, by the way, adopted by the Food and Drug Administration in its own agency regulations, but also collective punishment more generally is still considered a war crime under the Geneva Conventions. The Fourth Geneva Convention explicitly states collective penalties and likewise all measures of intimidation or terrorism are prohibited. And the 1977 additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions ensure that real or threatened collective punishments are crimes against humanity, at any time and in any place whatsoever. But what do we have coming out of the White House today? Out of anger and malice, the Delaware Fuhrer has targeted unvaccinated citizens without any regard as to whether they might individually have natural immunity or have gained immunity from already having been infected with the Fauci virus. Instead, DF's vaccine mandates are structured to punish an entire class of Americans who have the temerity to believe that adults should be able to make up their own personal decisions about their health. Their own health, yes. (laughs) Because racial minorities make up a large share of this unvaccinated class, Collectively punishing the unvaccinated has the obvious effect of disparately punishing non-white Americans for the crime of deciding for themselves what should be injected into their bodies. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, if we still had a working constitution, some might call that an obvious denial of equal protection under the law. Regardless, if threatening the livelihoods of a group of people for refusing to submit to forced government injections of an experimental treatment doesn't constitute collective punishment and a crime against humanity, well, then the door to war crimes in the future is wide open. He says, maybe one day, when all the woke fascism around us is finally repudiated, we can convene a special tribunal to sort through this mess, provide due process to all the accused, and then vaccinate the lot of them. Sorry, but that uh, that gave me a little shiver of, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a little little feeling of vengeance there i don't know if they ever will be held accountable but i think he's right on the money i think uh, i think medical experimentation and collective punishment they're not only violations of some legal code but they're violations of your inalienable let me say that another way your god-given natural rights so while I don't fault anybody for, you know, looking up, okay, well, the Nuremberg Code says this, the Geneva Convention say that, that's great. That's, that's further, you know, justification, or at least it's, it's further evidence that government is out of its lane in a big way. But let's not forget the single most important consideration, which is you and I have inalienable rights. They're not transferable. They can't be gifted away. We can't even give them away to government, though some people would like to because they're afraid violation of those rights is an affront to your humanity. It's an affront to your creator. So that's the that's the hill that I would choose to stand and die on. Yes, this is wrong because, you know, it's using coercion or it's using collective punishment, and that is against, you know, the Geneva Convention or that is against, you know, the Nuremberg Protocols. But more importantly, the reason it crosses a line and the reason why I will not yield and why so many others will not yield comes down to, because these are my rights, and I only have them to the degree that I'm willing to claim, use, and defend them. So take courage. You're not alone. You're standing on solid moral ground. Just hold that ground.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I don't know if you've had the chance to click on the
2: sponsored link that I include in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, but I would invite you to check out lifesavingfood.com. Yes, it's food storage. Yes, I understand. That is not the sexiest subject ever. I think most people, you know, given the choice between, hey, How would you like to have a really comprehensive food storage program or a couple of sick-looking side-by-side sitting in your driveway waiting for some weekend family fun? Yeah, I think most people would probably choose, you know, the razor and they'd be out making clouds of dust somewhere out there in the hinterlands. But I think uh, there are a few things more important than having that uh, that ability to be self-reliant when you need to. Whether it's for a personal emergency, you know, someone is injured, someone is sick, someone loses a job unexpectedly... You know, these these are the kind of things where food storage comes in. It could be something bigger, too. Maybe there's a natural disaster. Maybe, I don't know, just hypothetically, what if some evil overlord decided to take over our society and mandate that uh, you have to do what I say or you cannot feed yourself, you cannot shop, you cannot work? It'd be kind of nice to have something to fall back on, right? Well, I would encourage you to check out lifesavingfood.com. They've got uh, everything from full-on food storage packages Like a year's supply for several people, right on down to things that you can add to your own existing food storage program that are really relatively inexpensive. But more importantly, they are available right now. Demand is not so high that they're difficult to get hold of or terribly expensive. 25-year shelf life? I don't know. Think about it. If you decide to act on it, please use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, when you go to checkout because that will save you 10% off your purchase price. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, cargo cult science, this is one that really should be added to your lexicon. And there's a great article from James E. Handley. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research about how superstition and pseudoscience have found their way into our scientific institutions. He starts with an explanation, though, of the cargo cult science. After World War II... A Pacific Islander supposedly made headphones and microphones out of coconut shells and sticks in a futile attempt to call back the U.S. Army's planes with their unprecedented supply of food and goods. Physicist Richard Feynman used this example to coin the phrase cargo cult science, meaning actions that mimic scientific behavior while being at best pseudoscience and at worst religiously cult-like. In this COVID pandemic era, trust the science has become a religious invocation used by contemporary cargo cult scientists to shut down legitimate debate, to stigmatize skeptics of a non-existent scientific consensus, and camouflage politically motivated policy changes as gains in scientific knowledge. Now, users of the phrase are quick to acknowledge science is not an immutable body of knowledge, but this creates an unresolvable conflict for them. When scientists are grappling with an unfamiliar issue and our knowledge is developing rapidly, a reasonable person cannot abandon a degree of skepticism and wholly commit themselves to the scientific knowledge of the moment. But having done so, one needs to find an excuse to avoid admitting error, and more importantly, to avoid admitting that one's opponents might have been right. So in the face of smug, I told you so critics... Those who trusted too strongly in temporary scientific knowledge switch to emphasizing that science evolves, and they use this change as prima facie evidence that the science is working. Now it's true, scientific knowledge evolves. Indeed, it is a simplistic truism and that makes it makes it strategically useful, suitable for deployment, regardless of the actual cause of the change in the publicly reported scientific opinion, precisely because it cannot be gainsaid. So, for example, when an Anthony Fauci switches from opposing mask wearing to supporting mask wearing, it can be camouflaged as appropriately developing scientific knowledge, even though it's known that his real motivation was about the supply of medical grade masks. When the science can never be wrong, the cargo cultists are in charge, says James Handley. But because, so, because status quo scientific knowledge on new issues is contingent and ever-changing, there's nearly always no true consensus on the current body of knowledge. Because trust the science really means trust the scientific knowledge my favorite scientists currently believe, the cargo cultist cannot accept that critics of any alleged consensus are part of that standard process of change. Instead, those critics must be delegitimized, and any critic or any skeptic who relies on the arguments of these highly qualified scientists has to be stigmatized as anti-science. Oh, and if those scientists turn out to be right, their role in the process must be kept from the public record. When the science requires relying only on a favored set of scientists who are treated as infallible priests, that means the cargo cultists are in charge. And finally, credentialing is important to the cargo cultists, but they're inconsistent in their credentialing demands. For example, non-epidemiologists are not allowed to speak to epidemiology, excepting, of course, physicist Neil Ferguson, but not accepting economists, although epidemiology is built on models pioneered by economists and understandable by any social scientist who's done modeling. And the value of credentials is dismissed entirely when highly qualified scientists dissent from the claimed consensus. Even more, credentials are wholly disregarded when favored scientists without public policy credentials propose policy based on their current scientific beliefs. Public policy is a challenging field, because humans are contentious critters that don't always behave as you assume they will, and because the natural world and the interactions of its various parts are only known imperfectly. Masking surely has some benefit, but no policy expert believes everyone will wear a reasonably functional mask or wash their mask daily or always avoid touching their masks or wash their hands each time they touch it. Yet these are the prescriptions on which mask policies are built. You should not be surprised that one of the most common phrases in public policy is, that's not what we meant to happen. In addition, public policies always involve trade-offs. There are no benefits without attendant costs, and a good policy analyst must consider not just the value of the intended benefit, but whether that value actually outweighs the unavoidable costs. Now, this is one of the most complex problems in science, whether it be natural or social science. This is because costs and benefits are subjective and consequently unknowable. Therefore, all benefit-cost analyses are more or less accurate fictions with a margin of error that's literally unknowable. Very few scientists have any inkling how public policy or that public policy even involves these kinds of complexities, much less having an understanding of how to manage them. Like all of us, when we step outside of our fields of expertise, they are no longer experts. Mostly, they're no longer even marginally competent, although the biases of human cognition often hide this truth from them. James Hanley concludes by saying when skeptical experts are denied to have any relevant knowledge and favored experts are assumed to have all the necessary relevant knowledge, cargo cultists are in charge. Trust the science, he asks. He says, look, I'm a staunch advocate of the scientific method. But slogans are not science and they serve to primarily hide weaknesses rather than reveal strengths. I'll have a link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhide.show.com, And I would encourage you to take a look at this for yourself. If nothing else, you got a cool phrase now that you can add to your vocabulary, cargo cult science. Try to work it into some conversation, maybe over the dinner table tonight. I promise the wife and kids are going to be impressed. (laughs) Okay, no, they're not. They're going to look at you saying, what the heck are you talking about? So think about it. You'll find all of these stories talked about today in the show notes along with links which will lead you further and further into the rabbit hole and give you an opportunity to do your own research. Now again, I'm going to caution as I did at the beginning of the show this hour, it's great to be informed. It's great to to dig in and do the the research to really understand and know these things for yourself. But if you find yourself starting to feel weighed down, if if you find yourself starting to despair because... There's there's a lot of uh, unpleasant truths that are, that are going to be encountered along the way. Take a break. Unplug from the Matrix for a little while. Um, my favorite recommendation is if you can put away the electronic devices. I know that's hard. People need to reach me. I have kids. I have, you know, people that are try, clients trying to get a hold of me. Put the phone somewhere safe. Go for a walk, preferably somewhere in nature. Extra points if you can get somewhere quiet. And just let your compass recalibrate. Let your antenna recalibrate. Let your mind just feast on some peace for a few minutes. The crazy thing about it is you'll be surprised how quickly the world starts to look normal once again. I think all of us have to evaluate how, how we're doing on our daily intake of you know news and information from the mainstream media sources. I like to know what they're saying. I do like to have a, you know, an idea of what's going on. But I hit the saturation point of fear and anger pretty quickly with just about any media source that I can turn to. Take the break, reset your compass, and then come back to fight another day.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show a trusted voice of truth and light? God gave me a gift. I shovel well, I shovel very well, and a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
2: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, once a week we get together with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com and just look at what's happening, you know, at the passing scene. Eric always has a very informed take. And Eric, it's good to have you back on the show.
1: Well, it's great to be here. I'm unjabbed and unrepentant.
2: Excellent. I'll tell you, my resolve has never been stronger. And after uh, seeing the president's remarks last week, uh, that line in the sand is a trench. That's all I can say. Yeah,
1: you know, watching that as a student of history, uh, I had a hallucinatory flashback to the Kroll Opera House in Berlin in 1938. Here we had the president of the United States overtly threatening Americans. Our patience is running thin, and we will run over you. That's the president of the United States saying that to people uh, who um, do not wish to put their health at risk by being jabbed for a sickness that doesn't really threaten them.
2: Well, on the one hand, it got a lot of people very riled up. I don't think I've ever heard more people say, "Oh, yeah." So that's the way it's going to go. Then I mean, and, and I mean, yeah. they followed up with the word "civil war," and it's like, "Oof, um, sure, serious times." But I'm curious as to um, your reaction as to what what's the best way to. Uh, resist, to, to just negate what uh, President uh, Ice Cream Cone is, is talking about?
1: Well, as always, the best way to resist is to simply say no. That's not a violent response. That's simply to uh, draw a line in the sand and say, this will not stand. I will not submit to this. And if we do it as individuals together, we form a mass of people that won't do this and it becomes impossible to enforce it when enough people refuse and say no in the context of an employer let's say if you have half the people in an office who refuse to go along with this it will shut the business down i think we can learn a lesson from the labor movement which used these tactics to secure rights for workers they walked out they refused to work they simply said fine we're not going to provide our trabajo uh... if you're going to continue to treat us shabbily and That applied the necessary pressure on the employer right now the employer is truckling to the pressure that's being applied by the government the government is threatening employers with these exorbitant fines if they don't turn around and uh, threaten to fire their employees who refuse to be jabbed well you can turn that around and apply uh, even more pressure on an employer uh, the pressure of the bottom line of their ability to conduct business and earn money you know what's biden going to do just going to uh, stroke more checks to keep these businesses afloat indefinitely when they can't uh, they can't operate? I don't think so. Uh, so that is certainly some something that we can do. And failing that, if it becomes necessary, as we've talked about before, I think that perhaps the time has come to simply opt out of all of this and form our own parallel society, our own parallel networks. This is a kind of soft secession. It doesn't require a civil war. We should simply say we are not going to be a part of this any longer.
2: No, I'm I'm with you on that. And and at at the same time, I I have to wonder about the employers who are actually feeling a sense of relief, like, oh, good. The government took this off our shoulders. Now we can, you know, bridge that gap between the vaccinated and unvaccinated and just tell everybody you have to do this. You know, somebody in authority said so.
1: Well, sure. They don't want contention. and, and, And to some degree, I understand that. Uh, businesses want to do business. You know, they're concerned about providing whatever the product or the service is that they're in business to provide. That's their prime directive, to use the Star Trek term. They don't want to get involved in all this political stuff. They don't want to be hassled by regulator, regulators and the government, right? And and that's why this is so insidious. The government knows that it can get private businesses uh, to serve as kind of de facto enforcement mechanisms for them using that threat, the threat of, you know, of keeping them in line, uh, being able to open their doors and do business or else. So, uh, you know, now it's our job to say, oh, no, we're not going to go along with this. And even if it does cost us our jobs, you know, a job isn't everything in this world. I personally uh, would never risk my health over a job. One can always get another job. One can always find a way to make a living. If you get myocarditis as a result of being jabbed, that's something you can't undo.
2: No. And, you know, it's I don't know on so many levels. I don't like being pushed. That's number one. I don't Mm -hmm. uh, I don't trust the vaccine at this point because uh, we're hearing talk of third and fourth boosters, you know, in Israel. And um, Fauci is now talking about, well, you know, we could we could need to extend this to children. I don't know, Eric. They're very determined that everybody gets, you know, on board with this. And that sends up a bunch of red flags for me by itself.
1: As it should. It's, it's a very sinister thing, and particularly when you take into context who's behind this, who's pushing it, and what is their interest in pushing it. These pharmaceutical cartels stand to make uh, billions and billions of dollars, and not just this once. Uh, I wrote about this the other day. Uh, at stake here is a principle and a precedent that's being set. If it is established that uh, the government, through its regulatory apparatus, Uh, with the complicity of corporations can make as a condition of employment that you be injected with this vaccine, then there is no longer any defense going forward to being told that you have to take that vaccine or even to uh, submit to whatever medical procedure the state and corporations decree that uh, is necessary for the sake of so-called public health. They might even get to the point of telling you that you have to go to the doctor every so often and then you have to do what the doctor tells you. In other words, they're going to give doctors police power. And if you disagree with the doctor and have questions about what the doctor says, then they can send the, uh, the body-armored goon squad to your house and drag you away. Is that the kind of society that we want to live in? I certainly don't.
2: Well, and, and people who may be reluctant to believe that should take a look no further than Australia to see what the logical conclusion of, of where we're headed, you know, leads to.
1: Yeah, and in Australia, it's unbelievably extreme uh, on the basis of literally a handful of so-called cases, not even deaths. Once again, this cases business of people testing positive on the basis of these notoriously jiggered and unreliable tests have tested positive. And I think one very old woman, I think a woman in her 90s, did die and on the basis of that uh, they have locked down and turned the entire country into a police state where people aren't even permitted outside of their own homes and i think they've been ordered to wear the face diaper even within their own homes around their own uh, their own family
2: and and which raises the question where does that stop you know
1: it, sure. where does what? it stop mm. well I mean, is america going to become a hospital ward you know i've begun to to repeat that like a mantra I, it's not my uh... my invention i wish i could take credit for it but there was a woman who testified in san diego i think it was against the masking i remember and she she, and she and she told the the board of supervisors america is not a hospital and that's exactly apt that's just so it isn't a hospital we're not in a sickness ward and it's time to stop pretending that everybody's dying or going to die because that's simply not true there are reasonable steps that can be taken these are not reasonable steps. And the the, the, the polarization and the threats being spewed uh, are alarming or should be alarming to anybody who has got their head screwed on straight and hasn't become a sickness psychotic. Yeah,
2: and you, you nailed this early on in the pandemic. Um, why should we pretend to be sick when we're not?
1: Exactly. Exactly right. What is the obligation of a person who's perfectly healthy, to pretend they're sick, I don't feel that obligation, and I certainly don't feel an obligation uh, to protect, as they put it, other people from a sickness I haven't got. It's outrageous. You know that lo- that can be logically be taken to absurd extremes. Uh, you could say to um, to a man who is fairly big, let's say, oh, you might punch somebody in the face, or uh, you might steal something. Therefore. So I feel safe that you don't hit me or don't steal something in my store. You must wear handcuffs from now on. Right. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's the same principle, isn't it?
2: Well, and and the the scapegoating of the unvaccinated and and the president's remarks, I think that was the most chilling part was, you know, we're losing patients. The unvaccinated are costing all of us so much. And yet I think, OK, how are the unvaccinated more of a financial threat to society than people who smoke or overeat sure. or drink excessively or, you know, who expose people to sexually transmitted infections and so forth? Of course. And I'm not suggesting that, therefore, we need to crack down on them and force them, you know, into economic ruin. But let's at least but that's have a perspective. This
1: thing go- if this thing um, gets loose, that's where we're headed. Uh, I have been for decades now uh, writing and speaking about the fundamentally, fundamental unjust, injustice of speeding tickets. Now, this is a, a minor example of the same principle, this idea that if you drive faster than whatever the sign on the road is, you're putting other people at risk. Right. That's the argument, and therefore you're going to be punished for that. Well, you know, I've been speeding for decades, and I haven't so much as scuffed anybody else's fender. At what point do other people's fears about my exceeding the speed limit take a backseat to the fact that I haven't harmed anybody? Since you At the end of the day, the most objective standard, the one rational standard that we can have as a civilized people is, was anybody harmed? If you can point to an action that caused harm to somebody, then fine, hold the person who caused the harm accountable for that. That's fair, that's just, it's, it's rational. But this idea of holding people responsible for what they haven't done is unjust and tyrannical and, frankly, insane.
2: Eric, since you've cracked open that can of worms on speeding, let's come back to that on the other side of the break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com
2: is my guest. And, Eric, I want to go to the danger zone just because Mm -hmm. I know this is going to cause some serious cognitive dissonance in some folks. Let's talk about speeding. And uh, you had mentioned in the last segment that uh, exceeding the number, you know, prominently displayed alongside the road there on a sign – Yep. Isn't necessarily, you know, that's that's not necessarily the commission of a crime in the sense that if if someone isn't harmed, you know, who's the victim? Sure.
1: Yeah, it's a statutory offense certainly, but uh, I think it's I think it's dubious at the very best to punish people on the basis of what somebody else, according to an arbitrary standard, uh, thinks is quote unquote unsafe. It has led us to exactly where we are now. Um, I'm a big believer in holding people accountable for what they do. So if you uh, lose control of your car and crash, irrespective of the speed, this is important to point out, uh, then you should be held accountable for that, whether it's as a result of uh, just being inattentive or being reckless. uh, Ultimately, you're to blame. You're the person who did not control your vehicle, and therefore you should be held accountable for it. On the other hand, why should anybody be held accountable for driving, say, 62 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour mile zone? Who have they harmed by doing that? Uh, you know, there's an ancient principle that's long for that's been forgotten uh, in the Anglo-Saxon uh, legal tradition that a crime had to have a victim, and if you went to court and could not produce the victim, somebody who was actually harmed by uh, the, the objectionable action, then there was no crime and no case and that's, I think, how it ought to be, and that's where we should be with regard to everything that's going on right now. You know, this idea that you can force somebody who's perfectly healthy to put on a face diaper because they might be sick. You can uh, lock them out of commerce because they might get someone sick. That's outrageous, and it's got to be ended.
2: Well, and it contributes to that overall, um, that that's attitude in society that if it's not under the direct control of the state, then somehow, you know, by definition, it's out of control. That's led of us course. to a lot of the mischief that we're experiencing right now in response to a virus.
1: Of course. And with regard to speeding, to go back to that, what's happened is we have instilled in people a passivity that is contrary to good driving rather than uh, you know, letting the individual be held accountable for how they control their car and encouraging them to be an active driver. To be the one who's in charge, to, to watch where they're going and, and to drive appropriately, we inculcate in them a kind of mindless, uh, reflexive worship of totems by the side of the road. That sign says do this, so just do that, and then you end up with people who will sit at a red light like you and I talked about last time in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, that won't change because the sensor in the ground isn't picking up your car, and they won't just look and see whether it's safe to go and go because they've been conditioned, like like Pavlov's dog, to sit at that light because that's what the law says. Yeah.
2: I've, I have uh, tried this test myself, and I've, I've encouraged my listeners to try this on occasion. If you want to see to what degree you are conditioned to obey reflexively, there's a great way to test this, and I think you were the one who may have, have turned me on to mm-hmm. this, and that is go out in the country, find a place where you have plenty of visibility, a, a, a nice stop sign, uh, preferably a four-way stop, and mm-hmm. then deliberately, when it is safe to do so, run that stop sign. And Absolutely, I, And I'm telling you, it's like it is like driving into a force field in the sense that <laughs> you, you you just you'll have a moment of panic as you start to run through the right. stops. And even though it's perfectly safe to do so, that conditioning is so strong.
1: And is isn't that sad. Once upon a time, people were, were taught and encouraged by their parents and in society to exercise judgment. And the corollary of that is to be responsible for your actions. Remember when we were kids and our parents would would, would teach us those things. You know, if you touch the stove, you're going to get your fingers burnt. If you got your fingers burnt, you got chastened and you realized, hey, got to be careful around hot things. And that sort of thing scaled. And what you ended up with, for the most part, was a population of responsible people who are prudent and careful in their actions, but not mindless obeyers of rules, which are sometimes just stupid.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I, I know that that concept is very disturbing to some people. And they'll usually reflexively say, well, what are you saying? Every man's going to be a law to himself. But that seems to indicate that they're, they're living in the law of the jungle, at least in their heads.
1: Right, but that, again, is not an accurate way to put it, not a law unto themselves. Uh, they should be a sovereign unto themselves and use the brain that God gave them and exercise the reason that hopefully they have developed to weigh and consider whether a law is reasonable. Uh, you know, do we want to uh, put people in boxcars because the law says so? You know, if a law is a bad law, it doesn't merit respect, and it should be disobeyed. If a law is stupid, it should be ignored. If there's a law that says you have to hop on one foot while whistling Dixie, are you going to do that, too, just because the law says so?
2: Right. Well, I think we're finding the limits of what people will and won't do. And uh, frankly, it's not very encouraging how many people will go along, no matter how unreasonable the demand
1: well, it's a, it's a subtle shift. I, you know, it's one thing, in order to have a functioning society, most people, I think, should obey the rules and the laws because most, for the most part, the rules are reasonable, right? I, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a, a flaming anarchist, to put it in those terms. Uh, you know, I, I understand that, that sometimes it's necessary to follow certain rules, but the rules have gotten progressively more idiotic, progressively more tyrannical and, frankly, progressively more insane, like the the rules that we now have with regard to these bizarre practices uh, of sickness kabuki, as I put it, um, that there's absolutely no reason for respecting, much less obeying.
2: Okay, so let me, in in the few minutes we have left here, Eric, I want to ask you, how do you deal with... The, um, first of all, establishing the, the line in the sand for yourself. Mm-hmm. But how do you deal with the mental weight that a lot of people are carrying right now, trying to navigate their way through this without losing their minds? What do you do to keep yourself well, on an even keel?
1: It's very difficult. Uh, I, I have wrestled with the anxiety and the depression and the frustration, as I'm sure everybody within the sound of our voices has. And I think it's important to do the little things every day to exercise your autonomy and control, which is what they are trying to wrest away from us, which is what is so debilitating. They want to make us under their thumb completely, under their control. Now, we can do these little things. And I have to credit uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, who you may be familiar with, for some of this. He and I are are, are aligned on, on this issue. Get up in the morning and make your bed. Do something productive, no matter what it is, whether it's a project that needs doing around the house, the grass that needs to be cut. Uh, go to the gym, eat well, uh, associate with people who, of good cheer, who are of the like mind, so that you know that you're not alone. Don't let yourself stay in bed and feel that the world is crumbling around you, because if you do, it will.
2: I like it. And, and there is something, I look, I, I take that advice, by the way. Uh, thanks you, Thank you, Jordan Peterson. I make my mm-hmm. bed when I get up in the morning, if for no other reason, so I can say, honestly, I have... Uh, I have accomplished something,
1: <laughs> small sure as it may be. It, well, it's a small things lead to big things. You know, it it's glib, but it's true that the step, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a step. It's easy to get overwhelmed by everything that's going on, and if you take the global view that you've got to somehow open your arms and tackle the whole mess and 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 wrestle it to the ground and and beat it, you won't, and you're going to get really frustrated, and you're going to be overwhelmed by the sense of hopelessness and futility. So, what you do? is you pick off a piece of it at a time whatever happens to be at hand do that and do it well and get it done and i promise that having done it you'll feel good and you'll feel empowered and you'll be ready to do the next thing and then so on the next thing after that
2: Here here Eric we got about 30 seconds left here let's mm-hmm. uh, let's talk for a moment about your website what can sure. what can our listeners expect to find when they go to epautos.com
1: Well it's pretty eclectic uh obviously we have Uh, articles having to do with new cars, also with with older cars, classic cars, motorcycles. But also, we delve into all of these interesting political and philosophical topics as well. Uh, We have a very active cohort of readers who bring a lot to the table, who are very thoughtful, very well-read, and interesting folks. And I would encourage people, if they're interested in my articles, to read them, but also to scroll down a little farther and follow some of the back-and-forth comments that uh, go on on the site, because they're really uh, edifying and entertaining at the same time.
2: Absolutely. I've got a link in the show notes at com to your website. Eric Peters, great as always to catch up with you.
1: Likewise, Brian. Look forward to the next one.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
2: Our program is brought to you in part today by Patriot Home Mortgage, especially the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are purchasing a home anywhere in the state of Utah. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even if it's just refinancing your existing mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the experience, and the clout to help you get the loan that you need without delay. You can contact them at 435-703-4522. Their office is located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is seven one five three eight six. 386 And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So if I were to ask you, what is the best defense against violence? I think most people would be tempted to answer, well, more violence, or at least the capacity to answer violence with violence, right? Fight fire with fire. That's probably how I would have answered it, but Max Borders actually has a very interesting take on this question. He says morality is does more to stop violence than living in some Mad Max mentality does. He starts with a quote from Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. If you haven't read the book, Man's Search for Meaning... That is uh, well worth your time. Victor Frankl has some seriously great insights that, that surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly are very applicable to our time. Okay, back to Max Borders' article. What is the best defense against violence? Polymath entrepreneur Chris Rufer once asked. And Max says, though I'm not much of a gun enthusiast, my thoughts automatically turn to Messrs uh, Smith & Wesson. After all, the Second Amendment is designed to encode our right to self-defense. Then I figured that answer must be too obvious, so I replied with a chuckle, the police? Morality, said Roofer, the best defense against violence is to minimize the number of people in the world who are willing to use it. Now, Max Border says for a long time that answer felt off somehow. Some people are just cruel or predatorial in a way that morality won't change. But he says, I'm coming around to Roofer's perspective. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be prepared to defend themselves. Instead, we should give the idea of preemptive moral training due consideration. To the extent there is something to it, we have work to do. But he says, let me get ahead of myself. He talks about the moral vacuum and says, it's no secret that Americans are losing their religion, particularly the young. And I can say that despite being an unbeliever myself, I'm not sure this has altogether been a good thing. According to Gallup, only 47% of Americans attend a church, synagogue, or mosque. Now that's down from 73% when pollsters first asked the question in 1937. Despite humanity's history of religious wars and persecutions, most major religions offer some set of moral guidelines, virtues, values, and guidance on how to live a good life. Variations on the Golden Rule appear in almost every faith, but he says, as more Americans have left organized religion, they've also abandoned a source of moral teaching and moral community. So nature abhors a vacuum, the saying goes. So in the absence of religion, where are these lost souls turning for their morality? Now, Max Border says his hypothesis is they turn to politics, the church of the state. In other words, people are turning to politics as a kind of ersatz religion. I think he's right about this, by the way. Max Borders says, they seem to think that identification with some party platform or platitudinous yard sign is enough. But the virtues and values of politics, to the extent these exist at all, are anemic at best, deadly at worst. He says, instead of practicing compassion, politics prompts us to outsource our compassion to distant capitals. Instead of being personally responsible, politics asks that we ship our responsibilities off to algorithmic tax and transfer schemes. Instead of figuring out how to improve our lives, politics invites us to belly up to a trough of stolen goods. Instead of facing our fears and addressing our community's needs, we imagine that faceless bureaucracies are somehow protective daddies and caring mommies. Instead of setting good institutions for production and trade, politicians horse trade with other people's money instead of creating value or sustainably serving others politics legitimizes the expropriation of the productive classes instead of doing good in person politics prompts us to be seen or to seem good online instead of joining with our neighbors in solidarity or community politics pushes people to engage in partisan warfare So whatever your partisan affiliation, you will find little moral good in politics, which is why most people think of it as a necessary evil. We have to consider the possibility that it's just plain evil. Because it really comes down to persuasion or compulsion. If you want someone to act, you have two ways to get it done. Either persuade them or compel them. Now, you can use sweet talk. You can make her an offer she can't refuse. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, they're not the same thing. In other words, you can use means that prompt her consent or means that compel her. At some level, persuasion is the language of morality, and compulsion is the language of politics. You ought to do X is designed to persuade you. You must do X or else is a threat of violence, even if it's encoded. As Yale law professor Stephen L. Carter reminds us, law professors and lawyers instinctively shy away from considering the problem of law's violence. Every law is violent. We try not to think about this, but we should. On the first day of law school, I tell my contract students never to argue for invoking the power of law, except in a cause for which they are willing to kill. Now, Carter's admonition should extend well beyond lawyers. Every single one of us must be reminded that politics is inherently violent. Politics and morality are what you might call overlapping magisteria. That is to say each domain has certain qualities that make it distinct but there are or at least should be crucially area crucially important areas of overlap more specifically politics needs more morality although it's not clear that morality needs more politics in fact uh, max border says i'm committed to a liberal doctrine that includes minimizing politics to the greatest possible extent why would anyone support such a doctrine well, said simply, to engage in politics is to deal in the currency of threat. Therefore, it's not hard to imagine how the world might be better for any given person if more human community members chose persuasive over compulsory means. The Vedics call this ahimsa, or nonviolence, whether in our individual thoughts, words, and deeds, or in the architecting of our systems of government. We should always seek nonviolence, it is the prime moral teaching. So he says, I'm coming around to the view that liberal markets have placed far too much emphasis on politics, policy, and punditry. And Max Porter says, it is time to place greater emphasis on morality, meaning, and mind control. By morality, he says, that's the discipline of being good. Saying, I believe that at the most fundamental level, being good starts with a commitment to nonviolence we should add the conscious, continuous practice of integrity, compassion, toleration, stewardship, and curiosity upon that foundation. Now, perhaps there are more, but he says these six qualities will take us very far indeed. One might go as far as to say that if we could start a cult of these six spheres and and make everyone a convert, we'd be far closer to heaven on earth than whatever image burns in the minds of ideologues. Meaning, he says, is the stuff of life. It's why we are engaged in our various pursuits, and it's how we see ourselves figuring into the bigger picture. When each of us reflects on our own lives, perhaps through the lens of septum circumstantiae, uh, who, what, when, where, how, and why, we can contextualize ourselves along several dimensions. In other words, by answering these questions about yourself in silent reflection, one forms a certain kind of picture of herself and her place in the world. While such an exercise is mostly subjective, it can confer meaning in ways we might call transcendent. Absent an individual search for meaning, one can feel cut, adrift, or worse, become susceptible to groupthink and submission instincts. Now, mind control sounds nefarious, but he says, I'm using the phrase in the literal sense, specifically referring to our ability to control our emotions and our behavior. In fact, he refers to the Viktor Frankl quote that he started with. Between stimulus and response, there is indeed a space. And through practice, we can expand that space such that we grow and develop as moral beings. In a world saturated with victimhood narratives and sorry excuses for everything, there's little left to enlighten, ennoble, or inspire. Part of a liberal project, then, must be to remind every person that she needn't be a victim of systemic or structural anything. She's possessed, an agent capable... She's self-possessed, rather. An agent capable of architecting meaning, practicing morality... And inspiring others to do the same. And the more people who are engaged in morality, meaning, and mind control, the fewer people will be looking for politics for their place in the world. And in so doing, he says she provides just a little more of the best defense against the world's violence. I kind of like that approach, and I think there's something to it. Of course, I'm I'm someone who long ago figured out that politics tends to poison everything that it touches. Well, I have a link for Max Border's article in today's show notes. Check it out for yourself at the We'll be back, just the other side of these messages.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This) is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout-out to
2: one of my sponsors. That's lifesavingfood.com. Be a great time to get yourself squared away by visiting their their web link, which is in my show notes, at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check them out. Food storage needn't be overwhelming, even if you're just getting started. The key is consistency. If you can put aside a little bit each week or each month, every time you go to the grocery store, or if you can just, you know, budget, okay, we want to make a $100 purchase each month or whatever, it adds up very quickly. But the key is to get started and then be consistent about adding to it. And I know this sounds weird, unless, of course, you've actually done this, in which case it'll make perfect sense, but... There's something very satisfying at being able to look around at uh, boxes of shelf stable foods that will last, you know, for 25 years if they're stored properly, and know I've got something to fall back on if some unforeseen circumstances come up. I don't know why. There's peace of mind in it, though. And you get this silly little smile on your face, and you reflect it feels pretty good to know I'm not going to be out there with a sign hungry, homeless, help, you know. Uh, this, this is just, it's a great way to prepare yourself against uh, unforeseen troubles or challenges. And it feels good being able to meet those. So I've got two quick stories I want to share with you in the time that we have left. I'm going to start with the painful one first. 20 years have come and gone since 9-11. What have we learned from the lessons of the past 20 years? I thought you'd appreciate Ron Paul's take on this. He says, we've learned nothing. He says, nothing upset the Washington Beltway elites more than when in a presidential, a 2007 presidential debate, I pointed out the truth about the 9-11 attacks. They attacked us because we've been in the Middle East, sanctioning and bombing the civilian population for decades. The 9-11 attackers were not motivated to commit suicide terrorism on the Twin Towers and Pentagons because they dislike our freedoms. As then President Bush claimed, that was a self-serving lie. They hated and hate us because we kill them for no reason. Day after day, year after year, right up until a few days ago, when President Biden slaughtered Amadi uh, Ahmadi rather, and nine members of his family, including seven children in Afghanistan. Now, the administration bragged about taking out a top ISIS target, but they lied. Ahmadi was just an aid worker working for a California-based organization, bringing water to suffering Afghan village residents. And this horror has been repeated thousands of times over and over for decades. Ron Paul asks, does Washington believe that these people are subhuman? That they somehow don't care about their relatives being killed? That they don't react as we would react if a foreign power, power rather slaughtered our families? Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright famously suggested in an interview that killing half a million Iraqi children with sanctions designed to remove Saddam Hussein from power was worth it. Those were her exact words. It was an admission that the lives of innocents mean nothing to the Washington elite, even as they paint their murderous interventions as some kind of humanitarian liberation. Humanitarian liberation rather. The slogan of the U.S. foreign policy establishment really should be No lives matter. The Washington foreign policy elites, Republicans, and Democrats are deeply corrupt and act contrary to U.S. national interests. They pretend that decades of indiscriminate bombing overseas are beneficial to the victims and keep us safer as well. That's how they are able, year after year, to convince Congress to hand over a trillion dollars, money taken directly and indirectly from average Americans. They use fear and lies for their own profit, and they call themselves patriots. He says the Washington establishment lied to us because they did not want us to stop for a second and try to understand the motive for the 9-11 attacks. Police detectives are not apologists for killers when they try to look for a motive for the crime. But the Washington elite did not want us to think about why people might be motivated to suicide attack. That might endanger their 100-year gravy train. So what was the real message of 9-11 to Americans? Give up your freedoms for the false promise of security. It's okay for the government to spy on all of us. It's okay for the TSA to abuse us for the privilege of traveling in our own country. We must continue to bomb people overseas, but don't worry, it's only temporary. So 20 years on, what have we learned from 9-11 Again, Ron Paul says absolutely nothing. And we all know what philosopher George Santayana said about those incapable of learning from history. He says, I desperately hope that somehow the United States will adopt a non-interventionist foreign policy, which would actually protect us from another attack. I truly wish Americans would demand that their leaders learn from history. The only way to make us safe is to end the regime of the Washington killing machine. I understand that could rub some people the wrong way. I still think he happens to be right about this. One final note. Uh, When an idea is so good that it has to be mandatory, of course, I don't think it's really such a good idea at all. And this is especially true when it comes to dealing with the unvaccinated as if they're causing harm. Well, Dr. Michael Akkad gives a scholarly response to the question, are the unvaccinated a threat to others? And he argues this in the scholastic style. So objection one, the unvaccinated are indeed a threat to others because the pandemic will only be overcome through herd immunity and herd immunity can only be achieved safely and promptly through widespread vaccination. The unvaccinated are therefore postponing the time until herd immunity is achieved and are therefore responsible for the heavy morbidity and mortality caused by this unavoidable, by this avoidable delay. Objection two: asymptomatic infections, with SARS-CoV-2 are known to occur and an unvaccinated person can transmit the virus to innocent bystanders. Therefore, the unvaccinated are a threat to others. Objection three, the unvaccinated have an irrational fear of vaccines that is not supported by science. They have conspiratorial attitudes that are spreading through campaigns of disinformation, undermining public health institutions, and damaging social cohesion. Therefore, the unvaccinated are a threat to others. Objection four, by minimizing the danger of the virus, the unvaccinated also dismiss the value of non-pharmacological interventions, or NPIs, such as social distancing and masking. Their overall reckless behavior further contributes to the spread of the virus and to much morbidity and mortality. Therefore, the unvaccinated are a threat to others. And objection five, The unvaccinated are much more likely to be hospitalized with COVID and to suffer severe complications that are costly to society than the than the vaccinated rather. Therefore, the unvaccinated are a threat to others and should bear the cost of their health care if they persist in their refusal to be vaccinated. Now, here's the response. The healthy have no need of a physician, but the sick do. Therefore, being healthy, the unvaccinated have no need to be vaccinated. And cannot be a threat for failing to do something they have no need to do. So the response here is it's not the unvaccinated person who can harm, but the infected one. For an unvaccinated person cannot spread disease by virtue of being unvaccinated, but only by virtue of being infected. And being infected does not figure in the definition of being unvaccinated for the unvaccinated or healthy. An unvaccinated person is only potentially, not actually infected. And only what is actual can properly be a threat. For the legal definition of a threat is the real and serious communication of an intent to inflict harm. But the unvaccinated could only inflict harm by being infected, not by being unvaccinated. So he goes through here and replies to objections one through five. Objection one, herd immunity is a modeling concept in epidemiology that cannot serve as a target of public health policy as when Mongolia was believed to have reached herd immunity for measles through wide vaccination rates, yet nevertheless suffered a large and widespread outbreak of measles in 2015. The inability to achieve herd immunity, therefore cannot be imputed to any person or group of persons. Objection number two, he replies to saying asymptomatic infections can affect the vaccinated as well as the unvaccinated. Furthermore, the inability to detect an asymptomatic infection is a shortcoming of technology. Traffic deaths are much more likely to occur under poor lighting conditions, but we don't consider nighttime drivers to be a public threat. As to objection three, his reply is a society that claims to be pluralistic cannot be threatened by a plurality of attitudes. Distrust of public institutions can't be considered a threat if coming from the unvaccinated, but a virtue or at least an acceptable social stance if coming from other groups, for example, like Black Lives Matter. Objection number four, the correlation between vaccination status and compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions has not been established in a manner that excludes confounding variables. Furthermore, while NPIs are widely accepted public health interventions, their actual effectiveness is difficult to prove empirically. So the unvaccinated can't be deemed a threat based on this tenuous association to demonstrable harm. And I won't have time to get to objection number five, but it's in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at BrianHideshow.com. I thought this was a really fascinating article, if no, there, nothing else, for answering each of the objections, and I think he answers them well. Maybe we should file a few of these away as a little bit of intellectual ammunition, should we find ourselves engaged in some similar discussion.